Off the ball. There seems to be more sympathy for Argentina and support for Argentina. And a lot of that has to do with love for Messi's last dance. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. My fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof with the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jim McGinnis in his life. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. Between now and three, we're concentrating on sporting culture we can enjoy this Christmas. So the brilliant documentary maker Ross Whitaker will be joining us in a while to talk about some of the best sports documentaries and what he's been working on lately. But now we're speaking to the equally brilliant Irish Times sports writer Malachi Clerken about sports books, which are a great Christmas present for the sports nut in your life. Malachi, you're very welcome to the studio. How is the form? The form is great, John. Thanks for having me in. Uh, great to see it, and we'll go through a selection of these sporting books yeah. uh, over the next while during our chat. But just to start off, Maliki, because uh, you read a lot of books, you write so well, I read myself. What makes a good sports book, or even a great sports book, in your view? Um. Okay, so I think the first thing is a story. Yeah. And the corollary of that is that there's an awful lot of sports books that are autobiographies. That forget that the reader wants a story rather than just... I did this, I did that. ...somebody's life. Yes. Um, you know, an awful lot of sports books are autobiographies that of, of famous sports people or semi-famous sports people or in the case of the 2009 Ireland Grand Slam team, uh, everybody. I think I think they're on to... I think they're up to 14 autobiographies out of that that one team. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Roden O'Gara had two of them. Um, but they, but what some of them forget is that just because you put the f- some a sports person's face on the cover, uh, absolutely that, that, especially in this week of all weeks, that helps getting it off the shelf and into somebody's uh, pile of Christmas presents. And get somebody to hand over the nineteen ninety nine that it costs, but to make them any good, there has to be a story. There has to be characters. There has to be more than just the sport. I think to make them very good, you have to have more than just the sport. Um, and I think that's what it is. It's it's actually no different to any book. You know the the successful books, be they fiction or non fiction. Um, you have to have story, you have to have characters, has to be well told. That's what makes them good. And you have to be, have the ability not to put it down. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, this year was great for that. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I every year, get, a, get a, a start as early as I can on the sports books. Because there are just so many of them. Do you speed read them? Do you uh, do you give them all due diligence and go through them I all? give them all due, dil- due diligence. How, how I do it generally is I will read absolutely 100 pages of every book. Okay. And the ones that I fade out of um, are 
are the ones that I end up just not really mentioning or not yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. towards the end of the And the year. ones you're compelled by, then you rank up at the top. And the, there was more this year that I absolutely... not. Sometimes it's a chore to read to the end. Yeah. Because you know what the story has yeah. been. You can sort of tell where it's going. Middle of the narrative, not, yeah. yeah. Um, this year, it was no hardship whatsoever to read to the end of, I would say... Upwards of twenty sports books, which makes it an, a, a a really an outlier almost. You wonder is that a creative thing after COVID or during COVID or? Yeah, that could be part of it. Um, part of it is just happenstance. Yeah, circumstance. Yeah, yeah. like uh, last year, twenty twenty one, three of my top five sports books of the year were rugby books. Yeah, um, that's never ever the case. Right. Uh, for whatever reason I find sometimes rugby books are just they're they're sometimes a little bit too I don't know too bound up in their own mythology a little bit or they're uh, very a a lot of without completely generalising but a lot of rugby players come from very settled backgrounds and there's you know the, the greatest challenges in their life was making a rugby team which doesn't make for a, a hugely compelling story. But last year, you had Keith Earls' books. Yeah. Keith Earls' book, which was fantastic because he is a, you know, a whole life away from rugby. Uh, Willie Anderson's book, which was, which was just phenomenal crack and yeah. fun and from a totally different era of rugby. And there was uh, Tom English's... The Lions uh, 97. Lions 97 yeah. book. Like, there were three fantastic books. Yeah. Um, and the rugby offerings this year just aren't just aren't up there. So what I mean to go back to the point is that it's kind of happenstance. They come in gluts. Um, all of these books are independent republics. Like no, sure, no, sure. nobody is even within each sport. Yeah, exactly. And does yeah. he does it, one sport or the other lend itself to a, a better book? Or once again, is it just? It depends. Certainly, you would have gone if you go through if you if you go through this sort of classic. 100 best sports books of all time type of thing, you probably get 20 boxing books in yeah, there. Yeah. Maybe 30. Yeah, you yeah. know, boxing is has traditionally Sweet science. just been that thing that, again, you're talking about characters, you're talking about story, you're talking about where these people come from. Mm. Like, boxers come from the streets. They where come footballers from, is harder. Footballers is harder. Football, football books have got better though, John. Oh, they? Oh, they have, yeah. Like, they, they're... It's it's interesting with football in that it's such an enormous sort of cultural force. Football, like even beyond even beyond a sport, like it, it, it's it it has grown in our lifetimes way beyond it's just a global a sport. religion, a total global, and therefore there there are so many stories in it to tell, um, and that old like. Also, footballers are, are so wealthy now that they don't really need to do their book. Do you no, know what I mean? No. So, like... They're more likely probably to do a documentary at this stage. Docu- exactly. A curated documentary. Yeah. You know, uh, 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 their, their Instagram is their book. You know, they yeah. don't need to do... Um, like, even, even like Wayne Rooney did three or four of them. But, like, think of this current England squad. Would Harry Kane ever do a book? Not well, now. <laughs> not now. Like, Jack Grealish might, he might make a good book because he, there's a bit of a character. I don't know if Raheem, St- Raheem Sterling's more likely to do a Players' Tribune 
piece than a book. And so that sort of famous person's autobiography, like Messi has never done a book, will never do a book. No, it's, it's possibly a historical figure. It's Clough, it's Garincha, it's Morris, those yeah, types of Or it's the, the Miracle of Castle de Sango. A, exactly, yeah. Or, uh, and like there's, a couple, there's actually there's a couple of great books, great soccer books this year. Three or four are actually great football books. And there's there's people there's stories like yeah. there there it is Roddy Collins' story. It is um Expected Goals, the Rory Smith book about the the data revolution in soccer. Well let's get to let's get to them. So the Rodfather, Roddy Collins, Paul Howard. Mm. Uh and in a good way, I haven't picked this up at all because, once again, we're trying to encourage people to find something for the Christmas stocking for their loved one. But this seems to be a laugh from one minute to the next, yeah? Like, this is this is the funniest sports book I've read in a long time. Right. And I can't fathom how there'd be a funnier one for a long time to Okay. Come. It is just so much Relentless fun. storytelling. Relentless storytelling. That's what it is. It's It's... You know the way that like that that some books are structured, you know, uh, and then that season we did this, and then we played them, and then we did and we did this, and and there might be a, a story or two, but but a lot of it is kind of narrative. This is Roddy's story propelled by yarns, and I described it actually in the paper the other day as it's like it's like a naked gun movie for anecdotes. If you don't like this anecdote, don't worry. There's another one coming in the next paragraph. And it's just story after story after story. Does that blend? Because yeah. when you think it... It does. Yeah, it's great. Like, the thing that we we should always talk about when it comes to sports books, the ghostwriter is so important. Yeah. Because Martin O'Neill has written his own, apparently. He has. He has. And do you know what? It isn't bad. Right. Martin O'Neill has, ha, has kind of dirtied his bib here. Uh, in this country because he seems to be very thin-skinned Antonio done every interview so. there's, there's a bit of that but there's also every time you can't really ask Martin O'Neill about managing Ireland without his shoulders going and his hackles getting up but actually if you get away from the Ireland stuff Martin O'Neill's book isn't bad at all okay. it's really not bad at all and he's an intelligent guy and is able to tell his own story but a ghostwriter is important not just for very important for the how the book hangs together how the structure of it, how the narrative goes, but also because a sports writer, a, a ghost writer, gets the subject to talk about the things that they mightn't even think are interesting. And in Roddy Collins's book, like there, there, so much of it is, you know, his life as a footballer, his life as a, a football manager, his life as a normal human being, like a, as a plasterer, his life as a family man. All of this sort of stuff. Does he come across as lovable? Lovable is would be going too far, actually. Because he doesn't paint himself as lovable, okay. actually. Um, Likeable, certainly. Uh, unhateable, I would say, okay. is, is would be more accurate. I don't, yeah, lo- lovable would be overdoing it because he, like he falls out with loads of people and he's very strident and sure, look, everybody knows Roddy Collins, you know, and, and it's all here. Um, but yeah, unhateable, I think, is the, okay. uh, is, is, would be the better description of it. Right. Um, but it's so much fun. It really, like, it's, like, you just, you beat through it and you'll enjoy every minute. Put a smile on your face yeah. later in the day. Yeah, I, I picked up this the other day, Malachy, two brothers, uh, Jonathan Wilson, uh, on the life and times of Bobby and Jackie Charlton. 
and I've kind of sifted through it. So it's very, it's quite like the rest of Jonathan Wilson's books. And there's like a history in there. Yes. The stuff I wouldn't have known, like mm-hmm. within the first two pages, it's a Wembley Stadium used to be known as the Empire Stadium. Right. I never knew this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah, about yeah. The, like the Jack Charlton 86 chaos of Bob Paisley mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. So I, I, obviously it's not first person, mm-hmm. but it's going to be one of these books that I think is going to be very much insightful from a perspective of looking behind the curtain and seeing the relationship that they had because it's obvious they were talking cheese, you know. Mm, it's one I missed now, but it, uh, it's on my list to sort of go back to in the new year, but I've heard very good things about it. Um, I think I was put off, not put off it, but I didn't grab at it straight away because I read a really good uh, book on the two of them called Jack and Bobby by Leo McKinstry back in, I, do you know what, it could be like O two or O three, right. um, and and I hadn't gone back to it since. But look, as you say, Jonathan Wilson is as good a soccer writer and a good uh, soccer historian as there is around. So, yeah, I'd be really looking forward to that. Speaking of Bobby and Man United, did you read the 1999 book? Was I did. It? I did. Now, like... Matt I ca- Dickinson, this is. Matt Dickinson. I came to this going... Like, I was always going to love this because in 1999, I was a fairly fervent Man United fan. Right. I, I describe myself these days as a kind of a lapsed Catholic Man United <laughs> fan. Like, the bedspread's gone. The bedspread <laughs> is gone. You know, I, I, I'm I kind of interested in them at the minute because they're <laughs> like, and I, I, kinda, yeah. I quite like the struggle, but I really kind of got bored of them in the late Ferguson years and all that sort of stuff. But, um, but in 1999... I was, I was. It, you were hardcore. Oh my god! And I remember every game of that run in. And where were you? Uh, where you for the new camp game? Well, I was working in. I was a barman in <laughs> what was the Mean Fiddler on <laughs> Wexford Street, and couldn't get out of working that night. <laughs> and uh, we had it on on the big screen. I'll never forget it because I was working in the upstairs bar, and a really dear friend of mine, who's another Man United fan was working in the downstairs bar and he came racing up to the place was absolutely jammed uh, with like 500 people in it, and he fought his way through the crowds and we hugged each other when the Solskjaer's goal went in but anyway look th- that's all as a preamble to saying that I came to this book knowing like like Matt Dickinson's great writer yeah. and a really good soccer journalist and was there at the heart of it and I knew that I would love this book or put it this way I knew that if I was only warm on this book then I couldn't possibly recommend it to normal people. Or Man United fans who are looking for something for Christmas. For Yeah, but I actually, and I actually gave... Is there new stuff in it? Because well, that's what we want. There's one. so much new stuff Isn't in it, right? it that you wouldn't have known. Okay. That, that you were, like, I didn't know that Ferguson basically got sacked in the summer of 98. What? Now, it lasted, <laughs> it lasted an afternoon. Right. But that basically he was hauled into a meeting by Martin Edwards and told... Yeah, we don't really know if your signings have been very good. And he wanted to buy, was it that he wanted to buy Dwight York? He wanted to buy Dwight York. And they were saying, no, your signings have been crap lately. We're not giving you the money for for Dwight York. And Ferguson said, well, like, no, you have to. This is, it's not... It's not on. Like we we need a, we need an extra striker, and they went kind of no. And he says, "Well, are you firing me?" If and they said, "Well, like if you want to leave, you can leave." And so basically, he had res- either resigned slash been sacked. It lasted about six hours, uh, and then he 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 climbed down and rang Martin Edwards and said, "Okay, we'll stay on. We'll we'll see how we get on here." But yeah, that was like in the summer of '98 during the '98 World Cup. Uh, going into that season. Um, but the thing was that I read the book and I, I actually gave it to a Liverpool supporting friend of mine and said, look, I think this book is fantastic. Um, 
but I'm completely biased because I lived every minute of this. You read it and tell me what you think. And he came back to me about a month later because, like, he wouldn't, obviously wouldn't read it straight away. Sure. Uh, and he said, no, it's, it's brilliant. It's very, very good. Really a top class book. Very uh, good. So I, could, I can re- genuinely recommend it to any, anybody any of, fan, of any yeah. stripe. Yeah. Right. Expected goals, you touched upon there, Rory Smith. So the story of how Data conquered football and changed the game forever. Um, XG is something I, I kind of get into a sweat when I hear that phrase. Yeah. Because, um, like, I know you need to know it, but... I don't think it tells a picture of the whole of football. But does does this book, uh, like a bit like Inventing the Pyramid or, or uh, Jonathan Wilson's mm. book, does, does this book make it understandable? Totally. Because the thing with it was, and I'm exactly the same as you, like if if I had to take my 67-year-old mother and explain XG to her, I wouldn't be able to. <laughs> you know, I, I like, I vaguely know the 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 broad definition, but like, no, we don't. This we is don't, not football. You know, exactly. But the the premise of the book is, is sort of twofold. It's not about the numbers. That, your initial thought would be, this is a book about numbers in football and who gives a shit. It's not about that. It's about the people behind the numbers. A. So that's that's the one thing. And it tells the story of these people. And like, it's so new. Like, these people didn't really exist in football 20 years ago. But in telling their story, it also shows how everything that we watch now in football, we don't know this, but it is completely shaped by these numbers. By data. By data. And you, nothing that we watch in, in top-level professional soccer happens by accident. So Mbappe and Messi ahead of Saturday and Sunday's final. Mm-hmm. At three o'clock. It's all so people like. Are there people nerds in in, in today, rooms with charts today, and all this kind of stuff? Today in the Argentina camp, the data analysts have already worked out, having watched Mbappe last night, and watched how he left uh, Hernandez uh, exposed. Uh, exposed. Uh, that is that all those numbers have been crunched, and we will see in the World Cup final. Uh, the fruits of that analysis, but it's even more than that, John. Like it's, I was I, I was thinking this watching the World Cup. Like, how many goals from outside the box have we seen? It's very f- interesting because I watched the nineteen seventy. I'm a nerd. I watched the nineteen seventy eight yeah. tournament. Yes. All the goals on YouTube yeah. about three days ago, and yeah. nearly all the goals are from yeah. outside the box. Because of data analysis in, in top level professional football, now you're essentially not allowed to shoot from outside the box. Maybe the, the free kick from the Mexico guy? was that Free kick from the Mexico guy, Rashford's free kick, um, uh, Messi, Messi's goal against uh, Mexico and Schumann's, uh goal against uh, England. England. Uh, there's, maybe, there's less than 10, I'd say. You're not allowed to shoot from outside the box because data has shown, why would you do that? And I was even laughing at um, Croatia's, uh, the, the second goal against Croatia in the first semi-final where all the TV commentary were going, why are they faffing about at the corners here? Why, why are they trying to take these corners short? Why do they not just lump it into the box? Because Croatia have decided their data analysis through the, all through the tournament is, this is how we take our corners. We play it short, we move the people around inside, and that's how that one fell down, and we look stupid. And Spain, the data must have really, you know, you have to have a thousand passes. Yeah. But then there's, a, there's the data bit, and then there's the natural yeah. bit. And, and, the, and, the balance. So, and so this is the thing, 
like you can you can agree with all of that or not. Yeah. But the fact is that it's there, yeah. and this is this tells the story about how it got there, and it it goes through year after year and person after person, culminating in a like the 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 sort of crescendo of the book is Liverpool winning the Premier League, uh, the the COVID Premier League. Yeah. Um, which is sort of shown in this book as the triumph of the nerds, essentially. That the the analysis in Liverpool is all comes from it, everything they do the money ball theory do. is it? It's it's essentially soccer's money yeah, ball. Yeah, okay. Uh, and money ball is present all the way through it and all that sort of stuff. I find it fascinating. I must yeah, say, no, I, I genuinely you, you've convinced me to have a look at it. I genuinely it made me watch football differently. Okay, interesting. Messi Ronaldo one rivalry, two goats in the era that remade the world's greatest game by Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. I haven't read this. I don't either. know much I about it. I haven't come across it. Either, I know I read I know those two guys. They read the, the, they did the club and yes. that was almost like the cheat sheet on yes. the Premier League. Yes, yeah. So because that was so good, mm. um, that's probably worth checking out. Now, GAA. Mm. There's no bias here folks about Arthur James O'D and uh, <laughs> Limerick and autobiography in Nine Lives. Uh, he did a, did his interview with Jer. Um, of the off the ball stable, but uh, you correctly describe this Mal- Malachi as a video game. It is a yeah. video game. I picked yeah. it up last night. I started reading <laughs> the, the chapter in the nineties because it's the most compelling time in Limerick until now, and it is just. I'm almost playing, uh, and then I'm games over, and then get into another game. It's just fascinating. It's so well put together, so well uh, researched yes. and written, and obviously the story's there. You know, I I must say I loved it. Um, I was kind of beguiled by the structure of it. Yeah. Um, because you don't come across much new stuff. Yeah. When you read when you read an awful lot of sports books, you know, they all tend to fall into into their into their categories um eventually. And I mean I'm really even only talking in terms of structure here. Um but I was, yeah, I was really taken with this. Uh, like, I don't know Arthur at all. Obviously, you guys know, know him very well. Um, so I, I have no bias here. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and I read this in around September or so, and I just thought it was a brilliant idea to tell the story of Limerick hurling uh, through biographies of of nine people. Nine hurlers, essentially. Um, and I, I, I've said in a couple of reviews that actually it's sort of 10 biographies because Arthur's is in here too. Right. Arthur's family are in here. Like Arthur's from Sligo. His father's from Limerick. His father left Limerick 50 years ago, uh, but still passed on the, the sickness for, for Limerick Hurling to his to Which his we all Sligo have in family. our own way. Ah, yeah. And that's 100%. What, you know, for me, it's my dad was Claire, you know, so yeah. I carry that. And so it is... Um, like what? What people? The, the the other great book on Limerick hurling is, is literally unlimited, unlimited is literally called Unlimited <laughs> yeah, Heartbreak, yeah. which is now redundant. <laughs> well, 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 talk about two bookends, like you know, they're like and, and it's quoted liberally through here um, to tell the story of the rise from unlimited heartbreak to their sort of bestriding the hurling world like a colossus now, the way they are. Um, you know, there's a, there's a there's clearly a book there, but how do you do it? Yeah, and this is like in some ways, like it, sometimes it's more like a scrapbook. You know, like because there'll be an interview with Ger Hegarty, and it'll be like a hundred words, and then there'll be uh, a bit with uh, Nicky Quaid's ma, and then there'll be three headlines from. Uh, a day during the 1998 uh, Monster Hurling Championship and then there'll be like a poem and then and 
And all of that could be really discombobulating or it could be... Like, it's a big risk to take. It is a risk. With narrative With structure. your first book as well. With your first book. But it's... But, like, you can make a balls of that so easily. Like, you can make that borderline unreadable uh, if you're not very careful with it. And... Um, and he was, and it 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 just came out brilliantly. I I I I was really really taken with it. I, I really liked it. We're reviewing sports book of the year uh, with uh, Malachi Clerken of the Irish Times, and that's a hero books book. That's Liam Hayes's company, yeah. And they play a very important role, I think, in for like new writers and also for GA stories that might not get the big publishers behind them. Sure. For example, like I read Martin McHugh's one on Leitrim yeah. in '94 is was really really good, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I read um, the Jem O'Connor, the Cork Camogie players one, uh, written by her and Sinead Farrell, which I really enjoyed. Now it was again another hero book um, story of you know Jem O'Connor won. I'm going to get this wrong. I think nine All Irelands and eleven All Stars, or the other way around. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but the 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 numbers aren't. Exactly important, but the, she's like a you know linchpin of the great Cork uh, Camogie teams of the last sort of fifteen years. Is this why not a warrior? Is it why not a warrior? Yeah, I so named because she's in the defence forces. Okay, uh, and but also you know talks about she does something really interesting in it. In uh, and this was this is where I go back to what I was saying earlier about the ghostwriter side of things. Like Jem O'Connor is a gay woman, um, and you can sense from the book that she didn't want to make a big deal of it because it was never a big deal in her house or, like, she had no great sort of tortured coming out moment or anything like that. Um, And, you know, she's married and all of that sort of stuff. But it's not... It's not a big revelation in the book, but it's always there. And that's really... it's It's done really skillfully by the ghostwriter in that... She keeps sort of just lacing it through it, like, men, you know, talking about her relationship and, you know, in in the same way as, you know, like the responsibilities of being an intercounty player kind of affect your home life and all of that. It's just her home life is with her wife. And it's not, as I say, there's never a big deal made of it, but it's, it's not hidden away okay. either. And it's not... I, I've read plenty of books with sports people talking about being gay and they do one page on it and they say, this is my gay story and then we move on. And that's their way of not making a big deal of it. But it's a huge part of your life. You're like your relationship with your nearest and dearest is a, is a big part of your life and especially as an amateur GA player. Um, and it's really, really skillfully done throughout the book. And I, I really liked it. It was another another hero book. Um yeah, there's an awful lot of them. Yeah, no, and, and they they do really the the, the county stuff is very good as well. Mm. The way they do uh, a game of my life. Yeah, yeah right, Jeremy yeah. McCarthy did one with the the Cork women's footballers, yeah. uh, which is very good. Like like they're such an amazing story. Like uh, Juliet Murphy and uh, Valerie Mulcahy and the rest. And um, yeah, it was very good as well. Zach Moradi uh, and Niall Kelly. Yeah, uh, life begins in Leitrim from Kurdistan to Croke Park. Even like the title itself is interesting. Yeah. It's like Zach Moradi has had an amazing life, you know. There's a brilliant intro to the book, like the first page of it. 
I'm going to misquote it now, but it's along yeah. the lines of I was born in uh, uh, October 1991 and the next day uh, Iraq bombed Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine. Kuwait. Yeah. Um, so basically he was born into a life of war. Uh, and up until he was 11, uh, he lived in refugee camps um, in in and around uh, Iraq and Iran. And... Um, Eventually, got to move to to Leitrim as a, their whole family as, as refugees. Um, when he was eleven, and um, but landed in Leitrim with no English, uh, no sense of like. There's really <laughs> the lovely bit where they're on the bus from the refugee camp to the airport, and it's like it's a small minibus, and the Maradi family. I think. I think. I think there's eight of them are on this bus. There's another uh, family in the seats across from them and there's a sort of a single woman just up from them. And they're all going to the airport. The family of four are going to Australia. The single woman's going to Canada. They're going to Leitrim. And, you know, it could just as easily have been swapped over. Like, they could yeah. have been going to Australia, the family of four could have been going to Leitrim, the single woman could have been going to Canada, or whatever it was. And it was just that, that, there's be- that it's a beautiful scene of them kind of going, heading off way out into the world, having literally no idea where they were going or where they would land. Is it an inspiring story? Yeah, yeah, it is. Like, there's a lot of politics in it. Like, they don't get to Leitrim until about your your good 111, 112 okay. pages in before there's before you arrive in Ireland, before there's ever any mention of the GA, before there's ever any... You know, like, it's not... Does it portray the GA in a good light in terms yeah. of its... Yeah, it, not only does it portray the GA in a good light, like a really good light, you know, like, that's... As as he says in it at one stage, the only all of the friends that I have, all the relationships I have in Ireland are through the GAA. Okay. So like they live in Leitrim for a few years and then they actually move to Tala and he joins Thomas Davis, but he goes back down to Leitrim to hurl with Leitrim because that's how we get into it and all of that sort of stuff. But it actually um beyond the GA, it it actually really portrays Ireland's how Ireland deals deals with refugees in a really positive light. We always hear the other side, like, and and obviously we don't do enough. I think, you know, plenty of people would, would agree that we we don't do enough to make it welcoming. Um, but, but Zach Moratti's story, he, he and he'd say it and has said it himself plenty of times, is a story of, like, welcoming and good news and good humanity good hope and good humanity and well, uh, you know, the country did right by him and his family. So speaking of good humanity, after the storm, Damien Lawler. Yeah. Now this was touching upon was the GA through COVID. Was that the essentially why? how the essentially how the GA got through COVID? Um, and but like it's more it's more than that as well. And and I think like e- even that sort of subject matter sounds it sounds very off putting. Um, and. I must say I I kind of know Damien Lawler from from being on the beat yeah. for from over 20 years with another name on with another author I don't know if I'd have really dug into this but Damien does brilliant books about he he just gets ordinary GA people to tell their stories and their stories are far more interesting than even they give themselves credit for 
And so this was, you know, he he finds like GA people that nearly died of COVID in the early days. He like there's a lot from the inner sanctum in Croke Park about how they managed to keep the whole show on the road, how they managed to get the championship on the like the political machinations that went behind getting the 2020 championship the December All-Irelands the December All-Irelands all that sort of stuff like they they came very very close to not happening and closer than I think we all really imagined at the time Um, and essentially you know the government basically said these have to happen and we'll pay for it Um, uh, which was kind of a huge thing at uh, at the time Um, there's just so much humanity and so many stories in this book about the last two years. And, and, but I totally get how people would kind of go, I hear, I don't know if I, I could really be arsed reading. Or it's like reading, reading about, well, Leo and um, Pascal Donahue and, and people in Neffet, you know. Yeah, exactly. All that sort of stuff. But the thing is, I, I think this is nearly a book that you would come back to in 10 years. Okay. And, and, and appreciate it even more then. Than you would this is what it was like. I think at the moment we're still in the Roaring Twenties phase, aren't we? We're all going out this week. Well, we are a little bit, but we're also, I, and I was realising this uh, during the week, like, it's really not that long ago. Like, no. Like we, I it actually, is a blur, I think. Well, it's I a total blur, blur. But I, I actually, because I was... A year, I, a year I, ago there was restrictions. This is what I was just about to say, because <laughs> I've been writing a review of the sporting year for, for the Times that, that's going to be out next week or after Christmas. And I, I went back and realised, like, we started the year under restrictions. Like the week before the Alliance Leagues, um, you, you were still only allowed 5,000 people at a match. The, a fortnight before the Six Nations, you are only allowed 5,000 people at a match. That's this year, you know? So uh, so I, I think this is something, this is a book that will really, of, of all the books that we're going through here, yeah. will stand the test of time right. beyond everything. Okay, as because a, it, as a historical portrait. Uh, yeah, and it's a really important book for that. Yeah. Rugby. So Second Sight, Ian McKinley yeah. and Jerry Thornley. Yeah, this is a story. As, as this it. is a story, and I, like as I, as I said at the start, like the, the the rugby books last year, there was a glut of brilliant ones, I, and there just isn't that glut this year. But there is one sort of shining uh, star above all the other rugby books around, and it's this one. Like people will know broadly, I knew broadly Ian McKinley's story. Uh, he. You know, he was of the same age and vintage as, say, Ian Madigan in the in the Leinster Academy. He actually played ga with Ian Madigan and Kilmacud Croaks, like coming up together. Um, so he's that age. Uh, but when he was in the Leinster Academy, or he he was playing with UCD at the time, and a teammate stood on his face in a ruck uh, accidentally, uh, and he lost his eye. He will eventually lost his eye. Um, and I think I vaguely knew that he sort of had a bit of a struggle, but he found his way back and eventually, you know, moved to Italy um, and eventually played for Italy in the Six Nations. And then he's the Irish guy who plays for Italy. He's the Irish guy who plays for Italy with the goggles, was essentially yes. it. Um, like, his story is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and I just didn't know the half of it. Like, the mental troubles he went through, the... The like the the sort of tangible wars that he had to have with various associations like the IRFU, the RFU, the French Rugby Union, to be allowed to play with with these protective goggles. Um, he initially went to Italy to coach 
because he, he, his rugby career was was declared dead, um, and fell into a sort of a funk of depression. Um, by pure happenstance, his brother and and sister in law came over for a weekend, and it, him and his brother went for a walk one day, and he was in bad form and really moody, and he snapped at him, and and his brother could, as only brothers can, sort of saw through it and said, "Right, what what are we going to do here?" And he says, "Look, I can't accept that I'm finished playing rugby," and he was like twenty one or twenty two at the time, like that's my life, like I can't accept it. And so his brother, who's a really sort of calm, uh, forensic type of dude, essentially went home and, and mapped out a plan and said, right, here's here's how we get... So when you're reading this, you get in an empathy with Ian McKinley. Oh, yeah, my you, God. You're, you're getting like, connected as, as opposed to the, the person on the page. Like, it's a it's a story of pure defiance, right. really. Like, his his rugby career should not have happened after after he lost his eye. Like, it just... it By any... By any reasonable measure, that should have been that. Okay. And he not only sort of was able to swim back upstream, but to to come back and to play in the Six Nations for anybody, but for uh, uh, as the Italian out half as he did was uh, was really extraordinary. And it's a brilliant, it's a really brilliant book. It's done with Jerry Thornley uh, from the Irish Times, and it's a, fa- a really it, it it's probably of all of these. I'm looking through the list. It's definitely the most amazing human story okay. there. You know, that that just, as I say, a story of not taking no for an answer. And really, really brilliant now. An honourable, honourable mention to Ali Donnelly's Scrum Queens. I think yeah, said. yeah. Like, this was a book that kind of just disappeared when it came out. came out in the summer. I think it was around the time of the Women's Euros, the this Women's Euros soccer tournament. And it sort of came out... And kind of disappeared without trace a little bit. Um, but it's like, talk about an important social document. Like, it's um, the story of the rise of women's rugby. And like, going way back. Way, way back. Like, women's rugby existed... In Ireland or everywhere? Everywhere. Okay. Women's rugby existed, like, way back towards the end of the uh, 19th century. Uh, and just kind of faded from view because of the patriarchy, because of, you know, once we codified sport, we, we you know, as societies, we we put all our energies into boys playing sport and put none into girls playing sport. And, you know, the, the story is old as time. And then it's rise over the last sort of two to three decades. Um, Ali Donnelly uh, runs uh, Scrum Queens. She's been a tireless advocate for women's sport and women's rugby especially so there's obviously no better person uh, to to tell this story um but it's really like there's it, it it's exhaustive it covers so many bases um and another like like another really important book like because you know these stories don't get told enough and uh, and Women's sport is only growing, and it's 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 it is one of the better things to have happened to sport in the last decade. Is the sort of gradual growth of women's sport and the gradual acceptance, and it's there's obviously still not enough of it, but it is growing, and rugby is part of that, and this is this will people are awake to it now. People are awake to it, Their but it's all. 
Sponsors are awake to it. Yeah. That's how that's how these things grow. The filthy lucre, cash money, sponsors are getting think into about it. the Irish women's team, Sky Cadbury. Sky Cadbury. <laughs> you know, and, and, and but like that's how that's how everything grows and, and eventually it becomes unimpeachable and unanswerable and like God hasten the day for all of that. Other sports. Phil. Yeah. Golf books yeah. are quite rare. Phil Nicholson, Alan Shipnock. I love this now. There is, um, so, so this book created a bit of buzz and sort of controversy way back, um, maybe, maybe around the early, early 2022 or maybe late 2021 when uh, Shipnock actually released a bit of it. Uh, essentially his, they did an interview about the Saudis and about Live Golf and all of that sort of stuff, the coming dawn of Live Golf. I don't think it was even called Live at that stage. And where he, where, where Phil calls the Saudis scary yeah, yeah. MRFers. And um, uh, the thing is, it gives a, that gives a different view of, it gives a bad impression of what the book is. The book isn't a hatchet job at all at all. No, it's not. At all, at all. Did at you know all, much about Phil? Did you learn a lot from this book? I learned loads about okay. Phil, and I would have known a fair bit. Okay. Like I would have, like he'd be somebody I would have followed plenty over the years. Um, but yes, you still like I knew some of the. I knew there was a dodgy thing with gambling and insider trading and all of that. I didn't know the the granular bits and pieces about it. I knew as well that he was known as this hugely generous, hugely. A popular guy with sort of rank and file people. People's in champion. The people's champion. Arnold Palmer of the new generation. But again, didn't know the granular stuff uh, of, of how and, he treated uh, is, people. Because this had great, loads of anecdotes. Is this similar to the Roddy Collins book in a way? To an extent. This is a biography. We yeah. don't get many biographies. Yes. You know, you don't get you many. The Tiger Woods one a few years ago. Yeah, was, yeah, the Armin Katane yes. one. Yeah, and, and it, it was good. This is way more crack now. Okay. This is way more fun. It has, like, and I've been saying this since I read it first in May. The first chapter. Ah, the first chapter. Yeah. The first chapter of it is is the maybe the best chapter of a sports book I've read in years. It's fantastic because essentially Shipnock goes to thirty well known golf people, like Paul McGinley's in there, uh, Jim Furyk's in there, Matt Kuchar, all these guys are in there. Tell me your favorite Phil story, and he just paragraph after paragraph after paragraph for about fifteen pages. Uh, their favorite Phil stories, and it's so much fun. Yeah, uh, I, parts good. of it disappointed me now to say about the the maybe the intricacies of the majors and maybe were glossed over a little bit because there's so much entertainment and so many stories to tell. Mm, the one thing was I did think it got got a wee bit too, and this is the problem with all sports books, essentially that they got a wee bit too run of play, and then in 2006, yes, yeah, and then yeah. did, and then and then in that year's British Open, and then in that year's PGA, blah blah blah, and and. It, you get on a bit. You can you fall into the trap of getting onto a treadmill with with that sort of stuff, but um, but as I say, we don't get many biographies. We don't get many. We don't get many sports people who are worthy of a biography that have enough heft outside of the sporting field to carry out. But anybody, 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 anybody could read the film book. You don't have yes, a sports oh, fan yeah. to, to read the film yeah, book yeah. and be entertained by it. Yeah. Um, Ty Coakley, The Game, A Journey into the Heart yeah. of Sport. What's this about? So this is my favourite book of the year. Right. This is like if I was, to, if I'm to keep one book <laughs> <laughs> before the rest go to the charity shop. Um, 
this is it. Like, so Ty Coakley is a, he's from Cork. He's a novelist. He's an essayist. He's a poet. Uh, people would would read his stuff in like literary collections, like the Stinging Fly and stuff like that. Um, but he's also a big GA man, a big sports fan. Uh, like he 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 was a minor All Ireland winning hurling captain with uh, with Cork back in the late seventies. Uh, he played junior soccer for years. He's just he's he's a sports nut, and he's a beautiful writer. And this is a collection of essays. Basically, it's um, yeah, I think it's thirteen essays, and it's it's sport. It's an attempt to understand sport, an attempt to understand his relationship with sport, people's relationship with sport, what it means, all that big, big dumb question stuff, you know. Um, and so the. This stuff is as broad as his relationship with his father. There's like this brilliant essay called Kisses where he realizes that like his his father met him with a kiss after he won a match one time and that he basically spent the rest of his sporting career looking for that kiss again. Um and maybe his writing career as well. Uh and like he's clearly very well read. There's so there's an awful lot of um, inserts here from other books, other books that have tried to understand sport or tried to understand like misogyny in sport or um, the connection between crowds and players and all of that sort of stuff. And actually, if I have any sort of criticism of the book, is that he nearly spends. He nearly takes in too much outside information to 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 back up his arguments because he's such a beautiful writer. Does it come together, or do you? Is one oh, of these, it you, really does. Yeah, yeah. In and out of it, if you, you want. Can, to. You can do that. Yeah. Um, but it it's so he's such a beautiful writer because he's so he's such a humble voice. His, his sort of writing style is really it's kind of pondering. It's kind of it. It's at no stage sort of saying, well, this is the definitive take on sport. This is how you should feel about sport. That sounds like the advert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what it is, is is him sort of sitting down and kind of with great sort of humility and, and uh, curiosity trying to work his way through what sport is and what it means. I, it's, it's one of my favourite sports books for years now it, it's it's really really up there it's a big endorsement um, the best there never was I picked this up the other day again mm. on Jan Ulrich the 1997 Tour de France winner uh, Daniel Friebe um, has done a lot of graft on this a lot of interviews uh, fascinating story almost eclipsed in a way by Lance Armstrong and it's one, when I'm having read a bit of it last night once again I'll be I was curious about the and the key thing about all these things is curiosity to keep going. Yeah, I'm listening to it actually uh, on an audiobook. I do that with a, with a few books a year. Um just when I when I'm when I'm not uh if I've tired of podcasts, I stay I I I plow through a couple of these uh on on audiobook and it's it's the one that I'm on at the minute. But see, it's very good. Yeah. It's, it's so far now I'm only I don't know, only 3 or 4% into it, but it's good. 15 rounds in the wilderness, Dave Hannigan on the alley, yeah. another one of these. Yeah, like Hannigan, Dave Hannigan uh, has 
this is it. I think it's his third Ali book. His first one was When Ali Fought in Croke Park, which is one of the great, great Irish sports books. And, like, anybody that's into Irish sports books should have, uh, I think it's called The Big Fight. Uh, and it's when Ali fought in Croke Park. Uh, his second one was about the drama in, in the Bahamas, Ali's last fight. And this carries on from there. So his last fight was 1981. This covers the 15 years between his last fight and him lighting the flame in Atlanta in 1996. And so each year has a chapter. It's 15 rounds, so 81, 82, okay. 83. That's right. the 15 rounds. And it's written in a really interesting way in that it is... Literally, like, it it tells the story of everything Ali did in each of those years. It's actually hard to describe in a way. It's like it's not, there's no judgment from the writer in it. There's no kind of, um, everything is written clean, as in he went to do this, he went, he went to... Uh, open a uh, uh, kids' hospital somewhere, and it just tells the stories of everything that Ali did, uh, and it's really funny in places because he because Ali was so he was so funny, but it's so so sad. The overarching thing in it is so sad because you know some of it is Ali trying to to, to make money when the money had uh, was starting to dry up. Some of it is Ali getting swindled by some of the hangers on uh, but also some of it is is his fading health you know Deter- over deterioration those, over time over those 15 years he yes. went from you know a slow boxer you got to be in the right mindset maybe but worth picking up if you are really worth picking up because because as i say it's like it's not all downer right at all at all it's it's, it's very very funny and he's such a compelling character but like it's like we said at the start it's story and character Look, this has been a brilliant flavour, Malachi. Thank you so much. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa, we can't finish. We yeah, didn't do. We yeah. didn't do. We didn't do Kelly. Did we not do Kelly? We didn't do Kelly. Well, there you go. The Irish on post sports book of the year. <laughs> if Kelly ever sees me, she'll punch me in the mouth. Well, she might see I, you on the, at the Sportsman of the Year Awards. <laughs> Irish Times uh, Sportsman of the Year on, on, on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, yeah. So Kelly Harrington's... Uh, uh, Roddy Doyle. With Roddy Doyle. Leaving like, the best to last, in yeah. Well, now not not, Hogan, not, not the best in in my, but it's but still a very very good book. Like she's such a brilliant character. He's a great writer. Justice done. Justice done. Yeah, like it's not the book you expect. I you know I thought it would be funnier because Kelly is funny. is so hilarious. Like there's there's plenty of funny bits in it, um. But it what comes through it is her warmth more so than her humor and just the the humanity of her and. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Like, like people should read Kelly's book. It's very, very good. Well, Malachi, Turkin of the Irish Times, an absolute gent. Appreciate it. Not at all. Happy Christmas to you and yours. And yours. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting to you soon. Excellent. Thanks, John. Malachi Turkin of the Irish Times there, reviewing the sports books of 2022. You know what to do over the next week, folks. We're back after this. Off the ball. There seems to be more sympathy for Argentina and support for Argentina. And a lot of that has to do with love for Messi's last dance. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.